We are now three weeks in our teaching series on the calling of royalty revealed. It's an exploration of the kingship of Jesus. And so far, the past two Sundays, we've landed on two uh, truths about who Jesus is as the king. The first thing we landed on is that Jesus is the king among us. In other words, the kingships, human kingships, leadership that we experience in this world, uh, the kings of this world have often been uh, tyrants. They hold us at a distance. They're aloof and are only interested in us uh, insofar as we bend the knee and then give them the money and the power that they believe they deserve. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus is a king who comes among us, comes in humility, comes as one of us, knows our worries, knows our concerns, and he loves us. So he's different. And last week we talked about Jesus being the king who calls. In other words, Jesus has come to us, not just to be among us, but called us to follow him. And yet we follow him as the king, so we can't come to him on our terms, considering Jesus only a teacher or my consultant, or he's my counselor, or he's my buddy. He can be all those things, but he is primarily the king. And to follow him means to listen and to obey. So these are two facets of the, the diamond that is Jesus. Okay. Now today, here we are in the gospel reading, and we see Jesus, in a sense, in uh, beginning his ministry, right? It's a changing of a season. As the reading began, it says, now after John had been arrested, so John, if you didn't know, was Jesus' cousin, called John the Baptist, and he spent a large part of his adult life following God very intently and calling the people to repent. Say, we have problems here in this nation, we have problems in our community, and the main thing we have to do is settle our relationship with God, come and repent. And so John the Baptist, he's called the Baptist because he was doing something very unique, bringing people to the river to be washed, have their, not only their bodies cleansed, but their very selves cleansed from sin. And he's arrested by the authorities of the age, and then here comes Jesus, and he enters, and he makes this powerful statement that we're going to be looking at. He says, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, it behooves us, if you wanted to follow Jesus, so here I'm speaking to followers of Jesus, what is Jesus saying there? Because we could misunderstand him and then miss the boat not only in terms of what we know, but with our lives. So it's important that we understand what Jesus is saying. So let's take that, those three statements, we'll probably carve it up in two, in two moments, and maybe we'll get a handle of it. The kingdom is at hand, repent. Now why those two? Well, the first one, well, it's actually quite radical. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. Now, we hear the word kingdom, understandably, I think. We may think in terms of um, a geographical area, boundaries, you know, kingdom. We maybe think of nation states, but we think of these boundaries, and there's a kind of leadership, the king, and there's a sovereignty in this area. Geographically, that's what we're thinking about. And there's a sense in which maybe Jesus is also saying that, that will apply at least prophetically in the future, right? The whole world will be God's kingdom. But another way of understanding what Jesus is saying, he says the kingdom is here. Um, he is speaking primarily about our attention to a, re to a reality that currently exists 
that we're ignoring, he's calling our attention to it. Right? The words that he used there aren't primarily uh, chronological or have to do with geography. There are other words that can, can say that. He's not saying, uh, I'm inaugurating a new kingdom, and so pay attention to new boundaries. It's almost like he's saying, there's a kingdom that's here that has always been here, and you need to wake up to it. Now, that is radical, radical in any human age, especially, well, definitely at the time that Jesus was on the earth speaking, because the, common, the most common saying, and crucially political saying at that time, was, we have no king but Caesar. Right? And the fastest way to get anyone killed at that time is to point to them and say, hey, this person's claiming to be a king, a rival to Caesar. And then the authorities would swoop down inquire quite brutally if that was the case, and if somehow it was, then a swift and painful death. So Jesus walks in, and he says, well, the kingdom is here, but of course, as we'll later see in the story, but I think you know this, Jesus is not saying, ah, the king Caesar is here. No, he's speaking about himself. The kingdom is at hand. Jesus is saying, yeah, I know that you're thinking about Caesar or other princes in this geographical area, but Jesus is saying, I'm waking you up to a reality that you've forgotten, that there really is only one king, and that's God. And you can't ignore that. And no matter what the other kings, these other human princes make you, try to make you believe, there is really only one one king, and that's God. The kingdom is at hand. That has always been the case. It's here right now. Now that's a radical statement in any age. Because every age has had their political rulers of political kings. Yeah, at the time uh, when Jesus was speaking on the earth, it was Caesar, but there have been other kings since then. And so what Jesus says there, the kingdom is at hand, is controversial and complicated in any human age. But I would say, I would argue especially our age. Which doesn't land right away because you think to yourself, well, well, we don't really have kings or queens. I mean, we had our coins and, you know, uh, TV shows. Yeah, we had technically have something like that in Canada, but not really. No one here fears the monarchy. Right? Yeah. No, no, no one does that. Well, that's because we've, in a sense, done our best to abolish what we consider that old way of being, and we've a new world order. Things like uh, democracy, human rights, modernity. And I almost want to say sneakily, but maybe not so sneakily, we've enshrined a new monarchy. It's the monarchy of the self. Because the whole point of, of rulers, of monarchies, of kings, of emperors was that you were enshrining authority, ultimate authority, in some external object, usually a person. That's the locus of authority. And all my life is geared towards understanding that authority and living my, my, my very self in the light of that power. We've tried to abolish that, and what we've done is we've brought it to the very center of our lives. Not to be too simplistic, but I would say our culture, really the architect of how we exist and how we live our lives, would be the 18th century philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Maybe you've read some of his work. He was also uh, uh, completely done with 
uh, nobility and power being enshrined in uh, hierarchies of you know, kings and princes and rulers, or even the church. He said, no, what we have to understand, he would argue, is that the ultimate authority must be found within the self. Contrary to uh, arguments of the age, the, the, the inward self, the inner self, is actually beautiful and good and perfect. It's just fine, and we only get broken up when the external pressures get onto us. But inside, we're just, our true selves are there. And all we have to do to get right it's just look into our hearts and discover the genius within. And there's Rousseau penning these words, and he became the most famous author and political and philosopher of his age. Politician, not politician, but he influenced politics. And today, what was radical in his writings is the most almost banal today. Because if you said that out loud and you walk in these in this in this culture, you say, ah. What matters is that I just listen to my heart. Is anyone going to like, what? No one's going to react weirdly. They'll be like, oh yeah, sure, that makes sense. Of course, just listen to your heart. That's the new power. That's the new monarchy. It's found within. And that's why I think Jesus not only says the kingdom is at hand, he's, he's pointing us to a, a something that we've forgotten, we're not recognizing, and he says, repent. Repent. Now that word repent is also can be not only comfortable, but complicated for us. Comfortable because if you've gone to church for any length of time, you've heard that word enough, right? And every Sunday we come here and we do the general confession, you know, some sit, we get on our knees, we say the I'm sorry's, right? But the word being used there in ancient Greek has a very specific, uh, it's very specific, whether we translate repent. But it's literally saying, have a change of heart, or turn, turn the other way. Hamartia. Right? So, so it's saying, so yeah, you can understand it as saying I'm sorry, but it's more than saying I'm sorry. Have you ever done some, some I'll put it this way, has anyone ever harmed you or wronged you? And they say I'm sorry, but you know they have no intention of changing how they're behaving. Or maybe you know they have some intention of changing, but they really won't do it. Right? How many times have I apologized to my wife for not taking the garbage out? Oh, man. I'm in trouble, man. I'm being real. But, you know, how does that feel when someone says, oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry I late for this meeting. And you know you keep some kind of track in your mind. It's like, this has been happening two years. Yeah, I mean, thanks for me. I'm sorry, but Thanks, but you, you know what I'm saying? Because if you if you were able to, depending on the relationship, if you were able to, you might want to say, um, I appreciate that you recognize something was wrong, but I'll appreciate it more deeply if you just change the way you're behaving. And if you want time set for the meeting, or thank you, I'm sorry, just take the garbage. That's better than just that. Right? A change has to occur. Jesus is saying, the kingdom at hand, there's a God, recognize this, repent. In other words, you've been doing everything to ignore this reality. And that's not right. And more than saying, I'm sorry about that, you need to change the way that you're living. There has to be a fundamental change. Now that, as I said, is hostile in any human age, but I think particularly now, 
the pernicious hold that our culture has on our very self that we define ourselves so deeply as saying what matters is my inner self. I just got to trust my heart. And what you're saying is, I'm the ultimate authority. Right? I'm the king. Jesus, you're a nice counselor. You're a nice guy. Yeah, we can be friends. But I'll be the ultimate authority in my life. And as we've been saying the past two weeks, that is precisely what Jesus will not accept. He's the king. In other words, the universe has a moral architecture. God is the God. He is the creator. We are the created. The relationship we have with God is asymmetrical. We don't sit at the table with God in some kind of perverse democracy. God is the king. That is how we must approach God. But our rebellion to that truth shows up in many ways in our lives. And I'm going to just show you two. The first one's very short, though important, but it's short. If you've ever, there are things that we do in our lives that we choose to do that we, if we had to talk about it with somebody, sit down with me, but anyone else, we would, you would know talking to me, telling me what you're doing, that you would know what's wrong. You wouldn't defend it. Yeah, go out, have a little drinks, and yeah, I had too many drinks. Yeah, I went too far. Or yeah, I was upset with my, my partner, and yeah, I said some things I shouldn't have said. I was pretty mean. Oh, yeah, I'm at work, and, you know, yeah, if they gave me too many hours, whatever. Yeah, I took some bills from the till that I shouldn't have taken. Or, yeah, my friend told me this in confidence, and I was at a, a, with my other friends, and I just sort of, yeah, I gossiped. I shouldn't have said those things. And you can make a list, right, of things. Yeah, I'm having an affair. That's not right. Right? You just make a list of the things that if you had to speak it out loud, in your heart you know, but you're good at self-deception, you don't think about it, but that if you had to speak it, you would agree, oh, that's not right. You might even say, I'm sorry, or want to. You would even say, maybe, oh, that's, those are sins, that's a sin that I did. But really, if you think about it, when the Bible talks about sin, in a way, there aren't many sins. There are no plural sins. Things that we call sins, we lack vocabulary in English, we're talking about symptoms of a single sin. We're really only guilty of committing one. Right? Martin Luther will put it this way. He would say, you look at the Ten Commandments, you think there are ten rules. Really, there's only one rule, the number one. And the other nine are the symptoms that pour out when you break the first one. What's the first one? Thou shalt have no other God before me. There was only one sin in the Garden of Eden. And Adam and Eve said, we see God that you have the authority. You said don't have that tree. And we're going to go ahead and ignore that. We want to be like you. We're going to trust the devil. We're going to have this fruit. I'm God. I'm the seat of authority. You're, you can wait. And so everything that you've done, you might label as a sin, oh, I have this problem with X or Y. Yeah, that's true. You might have a problem there. Oh, I just have a porn addiction. Yeah, you do. But part of dealing with that addiction is, is, is coming to the bottom and saying, at the core, I prioritize my pleasure above my duty to respect 
men and women created in the image of God who participate in these films. Just one, for example, of many things you could say. Actually, I'm prioritizing my desire, myself, over them. Right? And so everything you could do that you point and you agree to, oh, that's wrong. Really, the problem isn't the symptom. You might say, that's the sin, that's what's getting me. Well, yeah, but actually, you have to look deeper. What's the posture of the heart? The posture of the heart is you're denying the kingship of Jesus in your life. And it's showing. It's showing. Now, on one hand, that's very important and serious. And if you want to talk, have a conversation about that, you know that I'm willing to. Hopefully, you do. But I don't want to hit on that too hard. That's almost, almost as easy. Because at least we're agreeing there's something that's wrong. If we sat down, yeah, you're right. How can we figure this out? So that's not actually that dangerous. That's only one step away from doing what's right because you at least you're saying something's wrong. The deadly thing, this is the one I want to highlight for you, the deadly one is the posture of the heart where we don't know, we, won't, we don't see that we're, we're hurting ourselves. We're like frogs in a kettle. Right? This is, here it is. And I'm saying this because I've heard it I've been doing this for a while now, and this is a very common saying that I hear. Um, yeah, Seth, I know I, yeah, I'm, I'm identified as a Christian, sure. Yeah, 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 I go to church, I follow, I want to follow God, reading the Bible, Jesus, but there are these certain beliefs or doctrines, I don't know. They, 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 do, they do seem to, um, they seem a bit much. I don't think, I love what Jesus said about compassion and mercy, uh, but I'm not too keen on these things that are the same. Or I believe the church should be charitable and generous, but I don't buy these doctrines. They're uncomfortable. They don't fit with my politics or my philosophy. I don't know. That's, that's probably a little too much. I don't agree with that. Here I want to be careful because there's a sense in which there's an honest, there's an honesty about saying, I and see how this makes sense, but this part I'm not sure about. There can be honesty there. But there's also a sense in which we understand what Jesus is saying and we just don't like it. We just think he's wrong. And we refuse to agree with him. Maybe we won't pontificate or proclaim that, but in our hearts we just don't agree. And that, that is a kind of a stubbornness or a willfulness that we might take ourselves as being modern and enlightened and just knowing more. It's actually a kind of pride and arrogance that believes in some way that we're smarter than Jesus. That we know more than God's wisdom revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit to his people. Which is odd when you think about the fact that Jesus was the greatest man that ever lived. He had to be the smartest. I'm not saying that he had a full grasp of Newtonian physics, but in terms of what matters, the human life, I mean, I think if you read that, you'd probably master it in a second. But whatever it is, is a human. The writings we have, Jesus is not wrong on anything. So that when you read Jesus, and he's crystal clear about certain things, and if you're a follower of Jesus, it's impossible, it should be impossible, to read him and say, well, I don't know, I think he's wrong. That, that's a problem. And it's a revealing problem. Because it's easy, I think, and it can be easily self-righteous to point at someone who's struggling with an addiction. You know, oh, they're just not a good Christian. Look at them rebelling against Jesus. And yet here we are, 
reading Jesus' words, oh, 10% giving, I don't like that. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. Right? Or gathering every Sunday. Or I should spend more time in God's Word. I don't know, I'm too busy. I don't know. And we start making these excuses and we put a hold on Jesus. That's deadly. But Jesus says, repent. That's why he's saying repent. You see, now, now do we see why he says, the kingdom's at hand, there's a God. Repent, there's a way that you're living. You're obsessing with the self. You've listened too closely to Jean-Jacques Rousseau for 200 years, and you let that die. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? Trust me, if it's uncomfortable hearing it, it's weird, it's wildly uncomfortable saying it. But that's the truth. And if that's all Jesus said, this would be heavy teaching. Like, heavy. And probably no hope. Because you could then like, try to agree with what I'm saying. And be like, okay, Seth, yeah, all right, then I gotta accept Jesus' kingship. I gotta, uh, you know, I have to put Jesus at the center of my life and have him be the ultimate authority. But I know that I'm gonna struggle with that. That's actually really hard to live that consistently. And I'm gonna mess up. I have messed up. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm going to keep messing up. So what are you saying? You're just unfolding a life, a lifetime of me just every week feeling like a loser? Like I'm always, I'm just terrible. I can't get this right. Christianity seems like a, a horrible deal. <laughs> and if that's what Christianity was, then yeah, I think it would be. Thanks be to God, Jesus doesn't just say repent. He says, and believe the gospel. The good news. And the good news, it starts off like Buckley's, but it ends up like honey. Here's the Buckley's. The good news, Buckley's is a medicine that tastes terrible, just in case you didn't know. The good news is you can't fix your life. Rousseau was wrong. The inside of ourselves isn't um, perfect and infinitely beautiful. There's beauty there, but we've marred it. Here's a little quote that I learned this week, and really landed for me. It's um, out of, what is it? Out of, out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Out of the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Immanuel Kant, you don't like him, take it up with him. But do you hear what he's saying? He didn't agree with Rousseau, by the way. I think he was literate enough, knew human history enough, to see that we are masters at hurting each other, preying on each other, deceiving one another, ourselves most of all, hurting each other, right? That's what we're good at, and that is not just a superficial problem. It runs all through the human heart, the very soul. And so if you're trying to engage in honest spirituality and faith, and you read what Jesus is saying, and you say, okay, Jesus, I repent, you're the king, and I want to put you at the center of my life, that is hard, and I don't know if I can do it reliably. So I feel pretty beat up right now. I want to tell you something. If you're considering being there, or if you walked into that moment where you're saying, I feel so beat up and I can't do it. It hurts, right? It's because it should. It means that the, the self that you've made up is dying. Dying hurts. You're killing it. 
walking into the waters of baptism with Jesus and you're drowning that lie that's been fed to you that you have propped up, that I've propped up. You're killing it, so it feels like a death because something is dying. You can only get resurrection, but you have to die first. That, that part of you is dying. And then you're left naked in the throne. God, I can't do anything. And this is the problem. And I'm going to say this with words. I understand if it doesn't land for you. This is something the Holy Spirit has to put in your heart. I can't convince you of this. So I'll just say it. And you just hold it and pray it. When you get to that part where you say, I can't do it. I could never live a life that God wants me to live. And I feel very vulnerable right now, and I feel very weak and silly, the moment you admit that, two things will happen. You will recognize and see that Jesus is right there with you. And in fact, you will then see that Jesus has always been there with you in the spiritual faith journey that you felt you started, maybe on your own, God, Jesus has always been there with you. Because the gospel is not that we in our brokenness and our sin are seeking after God. Rather, we in our brokenness and our sin rebel against God and want nothing to do with God. And God in love still comes to us in humility and in peace to embrace us. As we're hitting and punching and kicking and resenting his reality, God is taking the hits and he's loving us. Because that's who God is. He is loved from the first. And that's very good news. Because we're all broken. We're all hurting. We've all made serious mistakes. Even Rousseau, who has spent his whole life, his whole career, saying it's just where humans are innately beautiful and perfect. At the end of his life, he had to admit him and his mistress, they had five children, and he gave each one of them up to orphanages. And even at the end of his life, he seemed to regret that. He wished he hadn't done that. And the edifice he created, that we all bought into, I think he himself saw the shame of that. I wish he'd admitted it in pen. Save some trouble. But we all have that. If our lives have to be open, I don't think we, none of us could stand. Thank you to God that we don't have to. Jesus is saying, if you could do it, I wouldn't have come to this earth. Save us all the trouble. I just send you Ten Commandments 2.0. Just follow the rules. But that would never work. You can't do it. Therefore, Jesus has come. He's the King among us. He's called us. He's called you. And if you feel you're responding to Jesus' voice and you're wanting to follow him, but now you're feeling, oh, I can't really do this, and you admit that, you'll find Jesus will be right there with you. And then you'll realize that when you started your journey, he was there already with you. He's the king who never leaves us alone. We're never alone. And suddenly that makes sense of our I'm sorry's. Because when we say I'm sorry, if you say I'm sorry to me, or I say I'm sorry to you, yeah, I'll let you down, you're letting me down, and we're kind of getting annoyed with each other because we're not really changing. The change is just too slow. But God isn't annoyed with you might think the growth is coming too slow. Jesus knows it's happening exactly as you need. He's intimately patient. You can always come to him. You can always admit your hurt and your brokenness. He will always be there. 
help you. But you see, you can't receive that help if you won't admit who he is. Right? Seth, I'm friends with you. Yeah, you're that 10-foot pink elephant, right? No, you have to admit who I am. Five foot, almost 10. You know? Admit who Jesus is. He's the king. You want... You want that release? You want that healing? That peace? Trust Jesus. The king is here. He loves you. He's with you. He'll never leave you alone. And I encourage you to pray through that right now, especially as we're going to come to the Lord's table. Consider how you think of Jesus, how you're holding him in your heart. Consider that when you hear his words, how you respond. I'm saying this to you. I'm saying it to myself. Let's be honest about it. Let's come to Jesus. As weary as you are, he's full of love and grace. Let's pray and come to him with that. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we give you thanks that as often as we forget you or as often as we uh, reject or ignore you, uh, you don't do any of that to us. You are always there, always calling us to a new life love and healing and hope if only we'll accept it. God, I pray for each one of us in this room. You know our lives all the way through. You know what's tripping us up. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw near to each one of us, removing whatever obstacle there is that's preventing us from fully trusting you. Help us in this, we pray. In the name of Jesus.